0: Legislation on old prosecutions protect bloody Sunday veterans. Are Iran and the United States heading for a military face-off who said what, the British or the American general? And Neil Point, the politics of Eurovision in Israel.
1: It's not in the spirit of Eurovision to be boycotting this event. It's about bringing countries together, and putting politics aside for one night of the year.
0: The new Defence Secretary is examining the way historic investigations are handled and Penny Morden believes that those who have served in Northern Ireland should be covered by new legislation which would protect veterans from investigation if the event took place more than ten years ago. Here she is speaking in Whitehall on Wednesday.
2: Well, I do think... It should cover Northern Ireland. Yes. I think the problem is that we have failed to make progress on the, the whole lawfare issue because we have been held up, waiting for other things to happen. I made two announcements overnight. One is about trying to address the wider problem, uh, including uh, an assumption that we will uh, that prosecutions will not be brought, about uh, developing what derogating from the European uh, Convention on Human Rights means, uh, and other things as well, which I think will close down uh, litigation, vexatious litigation. Uh, We know the motivations that have driven some of the claims that have been made uh, when IHAT was up and running. I think we need to address that issue.
0: Well, let's talk to General Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff, and Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst, is here too. Lord Dannett, good to speak to you today. No-one is suggesting that criminal actions during warfare shouldn't be investigated, are they?
3: No, not at all. And all soldiers, we, we all know that, that nobody is above the law and that if you do something that is against the law, then you can expect to be investigated where evidence is found, Charges will be laid, and if necessary, a conviction will be will be gained. Th- that goes without saying, but then I've just said it. Um, but what what we've seen in the last 24 hours, I think, are two things that are very helpful. One is the clip that you've just played of Penny Mordaunt speaking and saying that sh- she wants to uh, bring legislation forward that will um, make it uh, imp- well, not 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 make it impossible, but um, take things forward on the presumption not to prosecute where events took place. Overseas more than 10 years ago but yesterday we were in a position whereby those provisions those new provisions were going to exclude Northern Ireland what we've actually had in Parliament today and I've just come across to your studio in in Westminster from the House of Lords uh, is a further statement by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland or actually the Minister of State for Northern Ireland um, to say that they want to look at ways of dealing with the issues relating to veterans from the Northern Ireland campaign and this is very good and what they're picking up on is something that a number of us have been suggesting for some time. It's two things, really. One is this presumption not to prosecute, but just to try to establish the facts of something. But then, and secondly, and this is really what is new, and I think is very good, is to try and come up with some process akin to the South Africa um, truth and reconciliation process. And I think if we can do those things, it would enable bereaved families to know what happened to their loved one, but also it will mean that soldiers can be questioned, but they won't feel they're about to be prosecuted. Getting the truth of something is quite legitimate, but making soldiers fearful is not.
0: Mm. In, in that light then, in what circumstances would a crime or a potential crime that happened more than ten y- years ago be investigated?
3: Well, I think the thing is that if things, if there are open questions, it's perfectly reasonable for investigators to try and get answers. I think bereaved families, whether it's a, a, a civilian family or a military family or a police family, I think they have a right to know what happened. But establishing the facts and getting to the truth is one thing. Uh, discovering guilt of wrongdoing is quite another. And the vast majority of evidence going back the 38 years of the Operation Banner campaign was that the is that soldiers, uh, 99 times out of 100, or even more than that, acted within the law and acted quite properly. And it's only if there is new and compelling evidence will actually investigation turn from just trying to establish the facts, but one that's trying to... Um, pursue a, a conviction. Uh, it, actually, that's most unlikely to happen.
0: In that light, though, if it's a question of just establishing the facts, as you put it, if you have perhaps an elderly veteran who's being questioned just to establish the facts, do you think that's absolutely
3: acceptable? Well, it's all a question of how it's done. What is not acceptable is uh, arresting them, taking them to a police station or, or whatever. But I think it is perfectly reasonable in an appropriate way to question someone because... Uh, The authorities want to know, or a bereaved family wants to know what actually happened. I think that is perfectly reasonable. And, And I think veteran soldiers can be part of that process in a much more confident way once legislation has been passed, which enshrines this presumption not to prosecute. I think that
4: gives us much more protection than we've had in the past.
0: Christopher Lee is here in the studio listening to what you've been saying, Lord it, Dunnett. It,
4: it's, it's also important to remember that as far as the military is concerned that there is, uh, let us call, an incident that may or may not question uh, whether the incident was carried out properly. The army on the spot at the time records notes and reports... Uh, the details of anything quite uh, considerably. It doesn't rely on folklore. Ten years later on, or or perhaps uh, private diaries, and so it it shows that there is a much larger, much more complex, and a, and a very important aspect of this that we sometimes we forget that the army is involved with from day one on its own accord.
3: Well, if I could also say, I mean, this is why hitherto this has been a very unlevel playing field. Um, the army kept, as Christopher says, very close records. So an investigator knows that which units on what date in what place was actually taking part in an operation. We're efficient. We do that. Did the IRA do that? No. Did the UVF, did the UDA do that? No. So it's been an unlevel playing field of information right from the start.
0: Mm. Is there evidence that uh, Northern Ireland particularly has made the army feel let down, Lord Dannett, in your experience?
3: Well, I'm afraid it's not just Northern Ireland. It's it's, it's Iraq, it's Afghanistan, um, and too many of these inquiries uh, have made soldiers feel nervous, understandably. But the problem here... um, is the Ministry of Defence has not faced up to its responsibilities, its duty of care to soldiers and to veterans. The Ministry of Defence, for too long during the Iraq and Afghanistan period, was really worried about the European Court of Human Rights and the fact if we didn't appear to investigate these claims, vexatious claims in the main, which as they've turned out to be, then there was a worry that the International Criminal Court would, or European Court of Human Rights would get involved. That's one worry. The other worry is that real political issue at the present moment. The Conservative Party only propped up in government by the Democratic Union, Unionist Party in Northern Ireland and the DUP have been very nervous about giving the kind of assurances that we're now talking about. So the Ministry of Defence hasn't played a strong hand here.
0: All right, we'll have to leave it there for today. Lord Dunnett, thank you very much for your time. Sit with Still to come, the General with 750,000 soldiers arrives in London with something to say. And Eurovision is Tel Aviv calling. GFES Zip The United States says it has defence intelligence that the Iranian leadership is supporting potential attacks on American forces and its allies in the Middle East. US forces in Iraq and the rest of the Middle East are on increased alert. Some are on standby to leave the region while the alert exists. Well, in the past week, the United States has reinforced its sea power in the eastern Mediterranean and its B-52 bombers operating from Britain's Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean are on shortened standby notice. Well, we're joined by Professor John... Joshua Landis from the University of Oklahoma. Good to speak to you today, Professor Landis. Um, this isn't a transition to war, is it?
5: Uh, you know, I think everybody is very tense. Uh, people hope not. But the United States is making a number of very um, uh, provocative claims. And also, it would seem that the Iranians are also pushing back. Now, this, of course, begins with the, uh, Trump's end President Trump's end to the Iran nuclear deal.
0: Mm, And Iran, what are they doing that's made President Trump react as he has?
5: Well, um, it comes out of the larger background of stopping the, the nuclear agreement that was hammered out under President Obama, that was going to lift trade embargo on Iran and sanctions in order for Iran to stop enriching uranium, which they did, and the world agreed to. Trump has undid, undid that and has placed very severe sanctions on Iran. He's hoping to get to zero Iranian oil exports. And that is crushing the Iranian economy. So this has put Iran in a very difficult position, and it looks like Iran is trying to provoke the United States into some kind of a—to uh, to escalate, in a sense— in face of American escalation. So this is going to be a very nerve-wracking escalation.
0: When the U.S. talks about its intelligence of a potential uh, attack by Iran, when it sends its aircraft carrier to the region, when it prepares 120,000 troops to be deployed there, um, is it saber-rattling, is it overreacting, or is there a credible threat?
5: Well, (laughs) there... In a sense, there's going to be a credible threat, I think, because Iran doesn't want to sit by and watch its economy get crushed. Now, we, we've seen that these two um, Gulf tankers were uh, sabotaged. There have been drone strikes on oil pipelines to get out of Saudi Arabia. So, the, you know, American intelligence is saying that this Iran is probably behind this. The United States is also declared that all non-essential Americans must leave Iraq, including the Kurdish section of Iraq. And that's very unusual. The United States did not do that in 2014 when ISIS was closing in on Erbil and possibly Baghdad. So this uh, is very high alert. It's sending all kinds of alarm signals to the region and to the Iraqis. So everybody's nerves are frayed. We don't know where this escalation leads to. Some people fear that uh, Bolton, the National Security Council director, as well as Pompeo, the head of secretary of state, are, um, do want some kind of confrontation with Iran. They say they do not want a confrontation with Iran. They want Iran to change its behavior. How realistic that is, we're not sure.
4: Tell me, Professor, uh, it's Christopher Lee here. Um, where is I- Israel in American and Iranian calculations?
5: Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu just announced that he was not going to let Israel get dragged into this confrontation and escalation between Iran and the United States, which is uh, a lot of people are annoyed by, I guess, in the United States because Israel has been beating the drums uh, against Iran. Israel wanted the United States to stop its non-proliferation agreement with Iran, its, its nuclear agreement with Iran, in order to squeeze Iran economically. And, and so in, to a certain degree, uh, Israel has been pushing the United States to confront Iran. And now that it is look like we're on the verge of a confrontation, Israel is, is ducking for cover hmm. here. So that's led, led to a little bit of conf- uh, consternation.
0: All right, Professor Joshua Landis from the University of Oklahoma, thank you for your time today. Well, let's go back to the point about Americans being evacuated from Iraq. The Americans say they have intelligence that increases the threat, but the British have been saying there is no increased threat. Michael Evans is the former Pentagon correspondent at The Times. Hello, Michael. Um, Tell us exactly what happened in terms of this divergence of opinion about the threat.
6: Uh Major General uh, Christopher Chika, who is uh, one of the deputy commanders for the coalition forces out in Iraq, Um, he's a Brit. There's always a Brit to that sort of level. And he gave a briefing to the Pentagon press corps on Tuesday. And when he was asked about uh, the level of threat in Iraq and Syria and whether the forces there uh, were in danger, Uh, he was uh, very relaxed and gave an answer which basically said, uh, everything's fine, I don't see any any, uh, new or dangerous problem, Uh, we're constantly aware of uh, security threats, and there's nothing different today than there was yesterday, which obviously runs somewhat counter, which is, by the way, the word used by uh, central command when they rebuked him, counter to the intelligence uh, which the Americans have been putting around uh, amongst themselves and their allies uh, for the last uh, two, three weeks.
0: Mm, um, the MOD is saying today they're not commenting directly on threat assessment, threat level, but as we said yesterday, they say we recognise the threats in the region to UK-US coalition forces and they're acting accordingly. This is uh, in response to a story going out today that, that the threat level apparently is supposed to have been raised for UK personnel in Iraq. I mean, where does the truth lie in all of this? What's your... I mean, can you assess it?
6: Um, I think so. I mean, basically, uh, the, the intelligence that is provided uh, for uh, the Americans and their allies is the same intelligence. I mean, they're not getting uh, brief versions of it. They're getting the whole lot. And you must remember that the, the request for more firepower, carrier, bombers, etc., came not from the White House or from the Pentagon. It came from the commander of Central Command, General McKenzie. Uh, he's the guy in charge of this whole thing, his, his whole, uh, whole area. He wanted more stuff because he looked at the intelligence and believed it. Uh, So why is someone beneath him, the deputy commander, a Brit, not believing it? I don't think it's as simple as that. I think basically it's the same intelligence they're looking at. But as far as General uh, uh, Gheka is concerned, he can't see any evidence of Iranian proxy forces, militia gathering, let's say, close to the US embassy or the British embassy or anywhere, anywhere else about to launch an attack. So I think he just basically spoke honestly mm-hmm. uh, and just said, well, I don't see any, any great threat level. Unfortunately, when you reach the level of, of, of a major general and above, you have to remember that 50 percent of your game is is military and the other 50% is politics and you have to remember that politics plays an incredibly important part and I think he somewhat forgot himself when he just put this rather blithe comment saying that everything was fine.
0: Mm, Ever since 1944 and Field Marshal Montgomery and the US General Eisenhower there have been differences between US and UK commanders. Isn't anything new then is it?
6: Not really. I think what's new is that, you know, we've been involved in this coalition in Iraq and Syria for a heck of a long time, and they all know each other, they all, they all see the same intelligence, and they all know about the politics in the White House, uh, whether it was under Obama or now under Trump. And so you have to be very, very cautious what you say. Obviously, there are differences of opinion, but the differences of opinion generally are kept to themselves, you know, between the four walls. What's unfortunate in this case is that it was broadcast, that this guy's particular interpretation of the intelligence was broadcast widely uh, everywhere in the world. It was broadcast to the Pentagon press corps. And of course, it was... Uh, it it made big headlines and it looked as if the Brits uh, are are disagreeing with the Americans. I seriously don't think that's the case. I think it was just an unfortunate way he put it across.
0: Okay, Mike Evans, former Pentagon correspondent at the Times, thank you for your time today. Now, this week in London, the effective head of the US Army, General Michael Garrett, gave a speech. He commands 750,000 American troops, ten times what the UK has. At the Royal United Services Institute, he was laying down the future changes for the U.S. Army, including where all major battle groups, commands and brigades fit together, work with other nations, and how they will fight. Let's have a listen.
7: I imagine that you're aware that the Army is at another historical inflection point. The Secretary of the Army spoke to this during testimony earlier this year before the Senate Armed Services Committee. That inflection point pertains to modernization. If we do not modernize now, we risk losing the first battle of the next war. We must build the next generation of combat systems today before our competitors outpace us. Even as we begin to modernize to meet future threats, we are balancing readiness goals with modernization priorities. And to that end, the Army has undertaken a brutal reprioritization of Army programs that has resulted in $30 billion dollars redirected into our modernization efforts over the next five years. We are investing those dollars into our top six priorities, long-range precision fires, next-generation combat vehicle, future vertical lift, the Army network, air and missile defense, and soldier lethality. This approach provides a holistic methodology to modernization so that we can achieve multi-domain dominance by 2028, while sustaining and maintaining our readiness edge. It's important to note we are not only modernizing our equipment and our weapon systems, our vehicles and aircraft, we're also modifying and modernizing the way we fight, our tactics. We also modernize the way we organize for battle, and we modernize the way we prepare soldiers for battle, our training. We're undertaking this modernization while sustaining operations around the globe, including missions in the U.S. homeland. While organizations and institutions have always adapted over time, last year the Army Secretary and the Army Chief of Staff initiated changes that are revolutionary in nature. One such initiative was to shift resources within the Army to organize and activate an entirely new command, Army Futures Command, the fourth four-star Army Command, joining Training and Doctrine Command, Mil- Material Readiness Command, and Army Forces Command.
0: General Michael Garrett there speaking at RUCI. Christopher Lee was listening to that. Christopher, what do you think of what he had to say?
7: Well,
4: it, it, it's a complete sort of layout of, uh, of uh, where the army, the American army, has got to go. You know, this guy has got close on only 800,000 troops. 800,000 troops, um, in different commands which are uh, at core level, and so very big army level, and they've all got to be changed around. They've all got to start operating in a different way uh, because they've got to offer on, on the simple American principle is that combat readiness, combat readiness, in other words, are you ready to go to war, is what the Americans call an outdoor sport that uh, You have to take things with you. You have to know where they are. And all these new uh, commands that he's, he's saying, and it's the integration of commands, is extraordinarily important, including this, the, the uh, Army's uh, Futures Command, which is, says this is how we keep it going, and we keep it going and keep looking at it.
0: What would a British military audience that was listening to that speech take from it?
4: They would take from it the, the need to join together, uh, and stay together. Uh, there's, there's 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 one sort of side of it. For example, the uh, the multi-domain uh, operational uh, s- stage MDO. Think MDO. You'll hear it lots and lots in the next com- the coming year, especially towards December when they start talking about it in, in terms of NATO. And that's the ability to work, to operate anywhere, anywhere you think you can you can think at the, at the moment. The American Army at the moment has got 180,000 of its troops, 180,000 of its troops, in 140 countries. Now, we think it, we, we have a hard job in being in, say, 20, 22 countries, but each one operates as a, as a, as a tactical and a theatre, and in some cases a strategic army. Yeah, it stands army. for... It, it, it's the multidenominational. It, it's, it's how you, you, you... where you go... You're different, you know, this is, you, you're allowed to operate, you're going to operate in the, in the South China Seas. You're uh, operating in, in, in Europe, mm-hmm. mainly in Europe. Operating also as a defensive organization in your own country. So a multi-domain operational MDO, you, you know, just, just, just uh, uh, remember that this is all going to be up and run, running as denominational uh, armies are. Uh, in, in america's planning by 2028 and that's 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 pretty close
0: and mm. um, although not on the same scale it's the kind of thing that penny Morden, the new defense secretary has got to put together with perhaps an, an uncertain post-brexit budget
4: and also a big punch up ab- ab- about the politics of all this um, we were talking earlier that realizing you know the politics and generals go together nowadays uh, in number 10 Downing street uh, there is a plan for the future of the of british forces uh, the, the The recent defence secretary uh, had a fight with the, with the uh, Civil Service in number ten about that. Uh, she has got to have to say to herself i 'm going to have an uncertain budget after Brexit, or where, if, if we stay whatever it 's going to be it 's uncertain. What am I going to do with the forces it 's not a question whether I can do it with the forces is whether, in fact, I might actually have to change the forces as we know them.
0: All right, Christopher, stay with us. Now, this year's Eurovision Song Contest is underway. It's proving to be one of the most controversial to date due to the fact it's being held in Israel. Well, earlier I spoke to Paul Jordan, otherwise known as Dr Eurovision. He's in Tel Aviv and I asked him about the BBC's decision to ignore calls for a boycott saying it's not a political event.
1: (laughs) Well, like any large-scale international event, politics comes into it. That's the same for the Olympic Games in China. It's the same for the World Cup in Qatar. We're here for Eurovision in Israel, and of course politics comes into it. But the event itself is a TV show, so it's not a political event. But as I say, it does creep in. But on the night, I think the music speaks for itself. Mm,
0: You're in Tel Aviv, aren't you? What's the atmosphere like at the moment?
1: It's electric. It's great. Tel Aviv is an amazing host city for Eurovision. We've not had a host city quite like it by the seaside, uh, by the beach. it's, It's great. And Israel is really proud to host this event. Yes, it is controversial that it's here. There's been lots of discussions around Israel's political situation. But that's been highlighted by the fact that Eurovision is here. So I think that's a good thing that we're discussing it. And I think tonight we're going to see a semi-final that's full of really good acts. That's the second semi-final. We've already had the first one on Tuesday. And on the grand final on Saturday, we're going to see the UK perform as well. So it's, it's going to be a good night.
0: And have a lot of people travelled to Tel Aviv? Do you get a the feeling there's a big influx?
1: I get the feeling it's a little bit quieter than normal because it's quite far away. People were probably concerned about travelling to Israel as well tickets were very expensive for a lot of the fans so it is a little bit quieter than normal but still people are here from all over the world and people are also visiting Israel for the first time as well and that's because of Eurovision so yeah it's great and it's it's like a a party atmosphere it's like going on holiday with about 100 of your best mates it's uh (laughs) it's really hard to describe it's it's great i love it
0: on the subject of the protest though um calling for this boycott of the event demanding an end to israel's continuing blockade on gaza are people talking about it at all has it had any effect on the event
1: I don't think it's had any effect on the event. People are talking about it, and there have been calls for particularly Ireland and Iceland to, to boycott. And I know in the UK as well, there have been discussions as well. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it's a very complicated issue. And Eurovision attracts a lot of gay fans as well. And Israel is the only country in the Middle East where it is legal and safe to be gay. Um, in Gaza, it's not. And there's all sorts of difficulties around this political situation in Israel. So it's it's a tricky one, um, but it is very much on the agenda and it's one that I am very conscious of. Um, it, it's a difficult one, but it's not in the spirit of Eurovision to be boycotting this event. It's about bringing countries together and putting politics aside for one night of the year when we all get together and have a bit of a party. And I think it's really important that Europe does that because, you know, we've got a lot going on at the minute. Mm. And um, particularly for the UK as well, it's nice for us to be part of something which is bigger than the EU, than politics, and than, than whatever. It's like it's part of um, European culture, history, and it's something unique in the television year.
0: Mm, you say uh, bring countries together. Do you think uh, actually this could have a positive effect on Israeli-Palestinian relations?
1: I would hope so. I think certainly there's been a lot of goodwill shown towards Israelis and Palestinians. There's been lots of discussions around the current situation. It's shone a light on what's going on in this country. And if Israel wants to stand on the world stage, it gets put up for scrutiny, like any other country. And that can only be a good thing. Uh, I would hope that it does bring people together. And I think Eurovision certainly does in many ways. You've got lots of countries that are arch enemies in in certain circumstances so azerbaijan and armenia they are neighboring countries they are technically in a state of war over an area called nagorno karabakh which is the disputed territory you've also got cyprus and turkey and greece turkey not in anymore but you've got these countries that come together for one night and they put away their politics and they join together so i think this is what the event is about and i would hope it does bring
0: Paul, um, Written- and that is until the voting, isn't it? I get the sense that you, you do want world peace, but really, when it comes down to the voting, there's got to be a winner. Who's it going to be?
1: Oh, well, do you know what? I'm really bad at predicting the winner, so I'm going to name a couple, if I <laughs> may. Uh, so I'm going to put my money on Sweden. I think they've got a good chance. And he also wrote the UK entry as well. So the Swedish guy is also a songwriter. So he wrote our song. Um... Azerbaijan is a good outsider as well. Netherlands is a big favourite. People are talking about Australia as well, so that looks good. And why is Australia in Eurovision? Well, why not? It's about building bridges and getting rid of the borders and being part of a world culture for one night only.
0: Well, let's return to the top of the programme before we go today. And Christopher Lee, let's talk about the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dinett, who was reflecting on Penny Mordaunt, the new Defence Secretary's uh, intentions to create a statutory presumption against prosecution of current or former personnel for alleged offences committed in the course of duty abroad more than 10 years ago, and to, in her view, to inclu- include Northern Ireland veterans. What do you think about the way he reacted?
4: I think I think a lot of it was predictable, but there's one particular thing. Here you've got a man who owned and led the British Army. Uh, it was his army. He was chairman of the Army Board. He comes back to the conclusion that in all of this, the Ministry of Defence didn't look after its soldiers, and it's not going to look after its soldiers in the present way that the new organisation of the Defence Ministry, when you look, it's not just Bloody Sunday, it's pensions, it's health care, and including the latest form of treatment for mental health care, ought to be thought about when Penny Morden gets into that chair properly.
0: If you have an opinion on anything on the programme today, send us a tweet at rep Join us again same time next week. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye bye for now.
4: On digital radio, FM, and satellite TV in the UK.
5: Online
0: and on air, around the world. This
7: is Forces Radio, BFBS.